Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Nadia Idle, and I'm joined as usual by my friends Kia Milburn. Hello. And Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And in this episode, we are talking about surrealism. So, guys, why are we talking about surrealism now? Why do we care about this topic? Well, there's a very proximate reason, which is uh, somebody on Twitter called At Blooms in Utopia prompted us to, to discuss surrealism, saying saying he just read a chapter in Robin D.G. Kelly's book, Black Freedom, is it? I think the book's called. And, he says, and it just made me think that surrealism is just a classic ACFM topic. And we, we've had it on our list for a while. And we thought, yeah, actually, it really is time that we discussed surrealism because it is if you learn to look for look around the history of the weird left it is inescapable i think just to stress we did already have it on the list just before all the friends who suggested topics we haven't done yet feel slighted (laughs) yeah and obviously surrealism as an intellectual aesthetic artistic political project in the 20th century mainly but also arguably in the 21st is encapsulates a whole load of themes that have always been central to our interests and concerns on the show and and the surrealist movement was really an inspiration to and a provocation for a lot of the theory and philosophy that we talk about and draw on so there are many reasons for talking about it yeah i i agree i think it's a it's a quintessential acfm topic because because of that kind of the weirdness that comes out with surrealism and i think I'm interested in exploring both understanding more about the movement uh, and who they were and what they were trying to achieve. And I think they raised some interesting questions. Um, But also, frankly, I know this is a bit of a a stereotype, but I am interested in the in the visual art because I find it really kind of piques my interest. Uh, So and there's also a Dali film out. I think. So those are all good reasons. Yes, there is. Um, I think those are all good reasons for um, talking about surrealism now. So if you wanted to talk about why now as well, I think the other thing to to think about is that there is a definite cultural trend towards Afro-surrealism or what's been called Afro-surrealism, particularly in shows such as Atlanta. um, And then I'm a Virgo, Boots Riley's um, TV series has just finished. I just finished watching that. He, of course, made the film Sorry to Bother You. And there's a definite Afro-surrealist aesthetic. It's also visible in or audible in in, in music, such as Childish Gambino, etc. And so it's sort of interesting about why that's happened now. Perhaps we'll come to that later on. Yeah, I think there's maybe a couple of things also that we should mention, which is the relationship between the surrealist movement and consciousness raising, which is something we're very interested in. So before we get into this episode, we should mention that you can go even weirder weirder and leftier by subscribing to our newsletter, which we now send out after every, every new trip, no more than once a month, with lots of bonus content and updates from the ACFM crew. So to sign up, go to navara.media forward slash ACFM newsletter. 
And for more music and less chat, you can follow the ever-expanding ACFM playlist on Spotify. Just search for ACFM. And to support us to keep bringing you even more from the ACFM cosmos, support our hosts, Novara Media, for as little as £1 a month by going to novara.media forward slash support. Right, guys, let's get into it. So what do you think about when you think about surrealism? Maybe let's start there. Uh, perhaps we have a couple of way into that question is like, how did you come to, to, to know about surrealism? You know, I didn't do a, an art history course or anything like that. It was basically, I think I came to surrealism via the sort of ambient situationism, which was in the sort of post-punk, anarcho-punk, sort of late 1980s sort of milieu I grew up in. Uh, and then from situationism, you sort, you sort of read back into their precursors in some sort of way. Um, and so I've always been more interested in it in, it, in its in the in the the way that it interacts with political movements and perhaps less as an artistic uh, movement and probably a little bit alienated from the the, the surrealist aesthetic as it as it sort of Dali-esque aesthetic as it as it came to be reduced to in the, in later years. Yeah, I remember as a teenager having a very strong sense of sur- surrealism was like the ideal type of the avant-garde movement from art history. And one did first encounter it through paintings. But the fact that the idea that it was an art movement that had a distinctive aesthetic, but also had a theory behind it and a kind of politics, this was something I was really conscious of from, like, pretty young. I mean, it seemed to be quite present. I'm thinking about, actually, there was a big... When the Tate of the North opened in Liverpool in the late 80s, one of the first things they did was, I think, they had a big exhibition on surrealism, I think. And so me and my friends, we were really taken with it. And we were also quite taken with surrealist-influenced films, films by people like Benoel, which you would get shown on BBC Two or Channel 4. And we, would, we tried to make our own surrealist films in, with a Cine 8 camera sometimes. So, and it was absolutely... The, but there was this con, con, continuity in my experience between, on the one hand, surrealism being this canonised... Uh, art movement of the mid 20th century early to mid 20th century on the one hand and on the other hand being something that was still sort of present in those the discourses of sort of weird left culture in the 80s especially coming out of the states to some extent i mean there was this sort of in that post-punk post-situationist underground of the of the 80s there was quite a strong current of people who in some cases uh, traced their lineage as visual artists or practitioners or theorists or musicians actually back to like organized surrealism in it in the 60s or earlier and i remember there was this real tension between people who were like they were into pop art and andy warhol and this sort of proto-postmodernism which was also part of the punk milieu, and people who saw that as a sort of betrayal of the historical revolutionary vocation of the artistic avant-garde, of which surrealism was the ideal type. So it was sort of, it was sort of really present actually in that culture at the time. What about you, Nadia? Yeah, so I don't usually get to uh, mention the influence of my parents uh, on this show, but my my first encounter with surrealism, I would say, was also in the late 80s and 90s when I was a child, I'm afraid. My dad was living in Newcastle-upon-Tyne at the time, and I used to go visit him in the summer and visit him in the winter, and he just had 
all of this really interesting art. Now, it was interesting to me, like coming from like him coming from a working class background and then like getting quite into like modern and modernist art. And it's not like it was like an arty house or anything, but I will distinctly remember being like eight or nine years old in like grey Newcastle, like having this massive like basically dali print and like a couple of other things and like staring at these kind of melting clocks and you know like horses with like these long legs and it really appealing to me and and not having seen stuff like that before or art like that before and so for me actually it is that's where it started and i realized from a young age that seeing like visual art or being exposed to the kind of art that presents to you kind of an alternative to quote unquote straight living was something that created an emotional response in me. And I'm still someone who doesn't know very much about art, but I love being dragged around exhibitions or like other events with people who do know a little bit about visual art because I like to be provoked in that way. It kind of raises, it, it, it appeals to me and widens my eyes in a kind of way that, you know, like a mad party where you don't know what the fuck's going to happen next does in a sense. So, so it, I kind of had an emotional response to it and it's, um, and it's therefore continued to be something that piqued my interest, especially when we started doing ACFM and kind of weird leftifying ourselves <laughs> identity, I guess. Um, yeah. So that's kind of like my, my background, that, but also in Alice in Wonderland, like I've always, I know that's kind of pre surreal, but I think that kind of some, some kind of like, trippy production of you know stories and art and that kind of alternative way of presenting the world you know has always kind of appealed to me as an antithesis to kind of capitalist realism and you know the boring dystopia that we find now in 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 late neoliberalism so i'd say that's the origin for me when I was thinking about this, about surrealism before the show, I was thinking, yeah, actually, it is a sort of, it's a way into a, quite a lot of the themes and interests and concepts that we've sort of been circling around on the show over the last however many years. The last sort of year and a bit, we, this idea of enchantment or re-enchantment, we did, a, we did an episode on magic, for instance, that sort of came up and we've been trying to work out what that is and how, what our relationship is. And I feel like you, Nadia, as well, like, you know, doing the podcast has also made me open up a little bit to to various things I might have been closed off to before. So things such as like the marvellous is like a surrealist concept, you know, it's a way to, perhaps that's a way to think, to get another angle on this idea of enchantment or re-enchantment with the world and these sorts of things. So yeah, I think it's interesting to to, to go back to this, to this sort of thinking, this, this, this movement, uh, because I think it was inspiration for quite a lot of the other themes that we've been, we've been trying to circle around. Let's hear something by... The great Scottish uh, folk surrealist or surrealist folk artist, as he's sometimes called, is sort of spoken word artist, Ivor Cutler. Uh, I'm always a bit unsure with Cutler, like what even the names of various tracks are. I think this is this is a very one very famous one. It's it's on YouTube as Life in a Scotch Sitting Room, Volume Two, Episode Eleven. Ivor Cutler, this fascinating uh, artist. Who I believe who was a, a favourite, wasn't he, Keir, of the, on the John Peel show? He was. That's how I know him. In fact, that it, it, it gives you a good a good glimpse into uh, the educative function of the John Peel show in the nineteen eighties and nineties. Is that you know you'd get these punk rockers tuning in to listen to the latest uh, post punk uh, cut, 
and um, uh, over time grow into love people such as Ivor Cutler. The sky grew black and white The wind blew under the door Let us go for a walk, said Father We rose slowly from our positions towards the door The door locked tight We set off in a straggly line Hugging the wall to escape the worst of the effects of the fresh air Perhaps we should start with like a, a sort of general introduction to the idea of what surrealism is. I think we, we, we'd need to probably go through like the, a little bit of the history of it and the, the practices of the surrealist movement in its historical form. Well, it's worth stressing just from the start. I guess for some people listening, they'll just be aware of surreal like as an adjective, really, which just means generally weird, possibly dreamlike, which is generally weird or nonsensical. And the point to understand here is that the term has a really specific history and it was associated with a, with a whole self-conscious movement in the arts, which is, begins in the early 20th century. The, the immediate antecedent to the surrealist movement, which starts to take an explicit form in the 1920s, is, is the movement, the artistic movement. If we can call, in that, call it that, known as Dada. I think they would call them ant, themselves an anti-art movement, wouldn't they? <laughs> I mean, a context for it, for Dada, is um, it emerges in Zurich, or it self-consciously emerges in Zurich uh, during, the, during the First World War. And it emerges around the, 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 this sort of series of, of nights in a nightclub called Cabaret Voltaire, which was sort of a, yeah, sort of like a cabaret. So people would, would gather around. It was initiated by Hugo Ball. Uh, and people would dress up in, create these fantastical masks, do, do all sorts of performances, do this sort of like nonsensical sound poetry, these sorts of things. And it created a real a real shock. And the word deliberately just means nothing, like da-da, it's just a nonsense syllable. Yeah. It was it was chosen randomly from a dictionary, apparently. Oh, really? To, yeah, 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 to, to reflect as a movement the rejection of of rationality apparently it was supposed to be like as in other parts other words that were used like nonsensical and absurd as, as you said i think it's it dadaism was like partly a response to the effects of war on people right and like a kind of rejection of bourgeois values is that right yeah the well, the, the, con- the conventional history and explanation is yeah it, it was happening in switzerland which was neutral it was where emigres from various parts of europe including lenin who i, I think I can't remember whether Lenin did go to the Cabaret Voltaire or whether it's just speculated he might have done or he probably didn't. But he, 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 had mate, he would have had mates going down, but presumably he wouldn't have bothered. He was in Zurich at the right, at the right time. And yeah, for a certain, cl- a certain class of, sort of bohemian artists and intellectuals, the, 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 first world, the disaster of the First World War represented to, to some extent a repudiation of the whole project of enlightenment the whole project of a kind of rational industrial culture which had been going since the mid-18th century or, or the mid-15th century depending who you ask or, you know, i'm sorry apologies to the medievalists who want to trace it all the way back to the 12th century we're not going to get into that now <laughs> um so it's um it's a rejection of all that stuff and obviously Vol- you know voltaire is like one of the iconic philo- philosophers of the early enlightenment in France, so calling it Cabaret Voltaire is always this, is sort of a joke. And the whole point of Dada is you never say what it is, you never explain like exactly what Dada means. That's one of the differences. It's like ACFM, then <laughs> it is a bit like ACFM, but it's a you know, I would say 
it's kind of interesting that Dada is sort of the provocation for all the the, the generations of avant-garde, like futurism, surrealism, cubism, all these different movements, which will often have kind of very specific sets of political and aesthetic agendas that they're very happy for everybody everybody to know about. And Dada is more sometimes seen as sort of nihilistic, but I mean, obviously the most important, the most influential artist to come out of the Dada movement is Marcel Duchamp. And it's Duchamp who really carries out the aesthetic gesture which becomes the foundational gesture of conceptual art and arguably the the aesthetic gesture after which the entire project of conceptual art should not have been regarded as in any way necessary perhaps before we get to duchamp though we should just do a little bit more of like because there's different interpretations you can put on dada so like the most obvious one is like it's like it's it's the expression of like a disavowed irrationality yeah. in society you know so you can look at the first world war organized you know that the, the famous story is that you know that the war couldn't be stopped when it when when it was declared because all of the logistics of the trains were all aligned and they couldn't put it off for a couple of hours because then it would fuck the logistics up etc etc this is a rationally organized endeavor apart from the whole thing which is utterly irrational you know what I mean? a little bit like uh, a bit like capitalism in that like it's rationally organized but to you know, to in some ways an irrational end, you know, the whole society is structured to increase zeros in an accounting sheet, you know, really particularly rational. And once you step outside of that, of a particular sort of bounded rationality, you know what I mean? So you could see it as like this, that what, what's happening is the expression of like this, the irrationality, which is disavowed in, in society, which is a nice explanation for why it happens in Zurich during the First World War, of course. But like, you know, in Zurich, it sort of shifts Dada, shifts. So, so when it goes, there's like Berlin Dada, which in some ways is much more explicitly leftist. In sort of Zurich Dada, Tristan Sara, he starts this, one of the main forms at which surrealism is going to take, which is the writing of manifestos, etc. By the time it gets to, Ber- to Berlin a few years later, you know, it's much more linked to leftist politics. And Richard, Richard Husselback, you know, he's writing demands which are sort of like fully automated luxury communism, as we might call it. <laughs> he wants, you know, work to be automated out of existence and for like everybody to be able to, 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 to be, to move from the realm of necessity to the realm of freedom. I think he might even use that sort of word. And like their idea of freedom that's been developed there, which really gets taken up by surrealism, goes back to, to Lautremont's saying which is that poetry must be made by all so like that's the idea of freedom is we're going to remove the realm of the realm of necessity so that we can all engage in a life which is the creation of poetry in in whatever means that is not necessarily just writing and speaking words there's a shift from like the nihilism to a much more almost positive project within dadaism before it gets to sort of surrealism in the early 20 in the early 1920s I'm wondering whether, and you know, I do not have, you know, enough information to be like the proper art critic on this, but it seems like there's a performative element to Dadaistic, like non art art, in a sense. Like part of it is to provoke, like it's intended to shock and provoke rather than necessarily as we get into the surreal in the surrealist realm where it's like this is the expression of what being a human being is supposed to be 
where like if you look at Deschamps fountain it's which by the way it's 1917 the 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 exhibit like that's it's still shocking like it's it's a shock. It is shocking that that is, that is somebody's idea of art. I love it because it does that to me for probably the same reasons that you were talking about. It is a sculpture, which is basically a porcelain urinal. Yeah, it's just a urinal. It's not a sculpture of a urinal. It's a urinal yeah, that no, he bought right. and exhibited it as his contribution to an exhibition of modern painting in New York in 1917. And, and, and signed it, Armut. Armut, yeah. Armut. You know, the general interpretation of the gesture is that it's drawing attention to the way in which art is really just a set of institutional conventions, that what defines something as art with a capital A in a modern society is its position in the gallery and in the gallery system, rather than any intrinsic property it may have. Uh, it's a very powerful gesture. It's a gesture which <laughs> I think Duchamp himself, I always think, would have been amazed at the extent to which successive generations of artists have felt the need to keep making You keep making that same gesture because the gallery still, system still exists and is, if it was corrupted by, if it was becoming corrupted by finance capital then, that was nothing compared to where it is now. So people are still making that gesture and somehow it keeps the keeps chucking along and but what was supposed to come out of it is an interesting question i think and i mean duchamp himself i think did sort of think that well really the only thing you could do with the category of art as a specialist form of activity was was to want to dismantle it to and to move in a utopian way towards a society in which you know the forms of creativity which get sort of concentrated in the art schools and the galleries from the mid nineteenth century onwards, in European and countries in America, places like that, really are dis- you know spread out across the society, and everyone can become an artist. Therefore, no one is an artist. There was this very radical utopian aspiration, but it's one who's it's one who's logic. It's a gesture whose logical conclusion is the complete dismantling of the gallery system. So it is designed to shock and, and provoke. It is it is it is designed to shock, and it's also it's interesting to think where where is this coming historically? It's coming historically at the moment when. The exact moment when it is becoming apparent that artistic avant-garde movements, which can seem really shocking and radical to people, can become incorporated into mainstream bourgeois culture quite quickly and quite easily. Because it's the moment when this is, it's, it's only just becoming completely apparent to people that that is what has happened to what were really the, fir- the, the, really the first wave of the artistic avant-garde, like the realist painting, painters around Courbet, the, the Impressionists, the Fauves, all of these people who in the late 19th century and very early 20th century had, had held exhibitions that when they'd first been held had, had really been seen as kind of public scandals because these people were doing this weird stuff with art, with paint that didn't look like real things and it was just kind of crazy. That, you know, and within a generation, all that stuff had just become completely normalised and completely accepted. And Duchamp's response to that is to say, well, you know, art is just an institution. It's not some kind of inherent truth of human experience and to make that and and to make that gesture. Uh, but then that's not really where surrealism goes, is it? Because surrealism, it's often said that there's a famous book about surrealism that's called Dada Turns Red. And there's this conventional account which is that Dada was just sort of apolitical or anti-political. And then when it fused with communism, it became surrealism. But I, I'm just saying all this really in response to your point, Nadia, that I think he's quite right, actually. The surrealism, in, in a way, 
Surrealism is much more committed in some sense to a romantic conception of art as somehow expressing a certain truth of human experience. Exactly, exactly. You know, rather than making a kind of radical gesture against the very idea of art. But yeah, but even in Surrealism, I think they would hold to that, you know, poetry made by all credo. Uh, they'd want to break down art as a specialist subject and, you know, the whole like Breton's always saying that it's not an art movement. It's, you know, they're trying to create a new mode of living, basically. They link that new mode of living to the revolutionary politics of the time as a, as so that, that that new way of living could be open to everybody. Yeah, but they're then producing lots of art. <laughs> I'm not dissing them for saying it. I am going to say it's something I often have cause to say in this kind of conversation. Just because you say you're doing something doesn't mean you are doing that thing. Well, that's true. That's true. But we are going to go on. We are going to go on later to say um, one of the main forms of surrealism is writing manifestos. So, just as an aside, just for anyone who's interested, who's like does, has you know does not come for any art background whatsoever, um, and wants to like listen to something really interesting about like the question around like what is art, Grayson Perry's. Wreath uh, lectures, which you can find uh, online on iPlayer, are just really good for like getting your head into like what, like, basically, what the fuck is art. Um, I'm just a massive fan of of uh, listening to that. So that's just an aside. That's yeah, a good recommendation. Yeah. yeah, I've not listened to it. Alan. Let's stop this recording and let's go and listen to it. <laughs> and go ahead and listen to five hours of uh, what is Let's art, do a, yeah. a live listen through together. <laughs> that's a good idea. Microdose. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. Why don't we have a, li why don't we have a, mic a live microdose where we communicate in um, irrational sound poetry? <laughs> 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 a composer who is sometimes associated, rightly or wrongly, with Dada and Surrealism is the great French composer Eric Satie. And Satie's music will be familiar to absolutely everybody because the extent to which it has been used in soundtracks, it's been, it's been turned into dance mixes, it's had all kinds of things done to it. Um, let's hear a bit immediately of his probably his most famous piece of music, Gymnopédie Number no. 1. Now, Sarti, what's really interesting about Sarti is what he says he's trying to do with that kind of music. What he thinks he's trying to do he, is create what he calls furniture music. It's not exactly a, even ambient music that's supposed to colour the tone of a room. It's supposed to be music that you can ignore, the way you ignore furniture. It's, it's sort of relaxing, but it's relaxing precisely because it doesn't aim to provoke an emotional response. It's a kind of anti-art music. And... I think rightly, Sarti's attempt at a sort of anti-music music is, or a music which completely rejects the aims and intentions of 19th century romanticism, more accurately, really, is closely associated in spirit with the sort of playful inscrutability of Dada. So... The term surrealism is, is generally credited to uh, the writing of André Breton, who's this key figure in French radical culture in the 
period between the 20, from the 20s to the 50s, maybe to even to the 60s. And the term surrealism in French just means literally, I think the best translation really would be superrealism or overrealism. So it's somehow more than realism. The term itself implies that you want to get beyond the limitations of a, of a, of a kind of realistic attitude to art and culture. So it's part of a broader tendency in the 20s, I would say, of radically inspired artists and, and art theorists. And here by art, I don't just mean visual art, I mean literature and music, etc., to want to break with the established conventions of representation that had developed in the over the course of the 19th into the beginning of the 20th century. What exactly the Surrealists want instead of the kind of carefully crafted naturalism of, say, the novels of Flaubert and Henry James or the theatre of Ibsen or even the even the sort of um, romantic um, impressionism of you know people like Monet, what they want instead of all that, well, that's the question really. And so the the founding document is often taken to be this thing, the Surrealist Manifesto, the first Surrealist Manifesto published by Breton. Is it twenty? It's twenty four, I think. And Breton, I have to say, look, when I was like in my late teens, early 20s, I thought it was fantastic. I thought Breton was this really fascinating figure. I sort of thought I wanted to be Andre Breton because I liked the idea of this uh, authoritarian <laughs> theorist, like telling a load of artists what to do. But the question of like, well, what do they want? What does the Surrealist, the, the Surrealist Manifesto want? It's not it's not that easy to answer because it's not a, it's not an exercise in like Dadaist nonsense poetry, but it's a pretty impressionistic. It is a document I would say that is very much more about vibes than <laughs> than about putting forward a clear case for your position. I don't know. I I, I was I reread it yesterday. Actually. I read it yesterday for the first time in in decades. I don't know. If, for our era in which vibes-based politics is so prevalent, perhaps um, it'll make a comeback. <laughs> yeah, I looked over it again um, in preparation for this show. Um, and yeah, the bits that people pick out are the bits about he's trying to resolve. He's trying to resolve two realms, basically the realm of dreams with the realm of uh, of reality. He probably doesn't put it that way. Um, into like something which links it together, which is the surreality, you know, the over, the, the super reality. Well, it is the general vibe, indeed. What is the vibe? The vibe is like dreams are, dreams are just as true as waking reality, man. And the realm of the imagination is just as important as the realm of conscious perception and reason. And this was a serious point. I mean, this was a very serious point that, into, that, that we threw what they were trying to say, like trying to unpick, a lot of the surrealists were like sitting, unpicking their dreams and like using that either to produce art or more writing. Yeah, well, uh, this is right, yeah. And, uh, and one of the big sources for this is, is Sigmund Freud, and especially Freud's book, The Interpretation of Dreams. Freud, the, the kind of founder of psychoanalysis, who... For, for lots and lots of people think has has discovered a kind of science of consciousness a science and of the unconscious which tells you very profound truths about the nature of the human condition and human experience and, and even human society and culture and i would say i sort of said this when we were preparing our notes for the show that surrealism is one of the first consequences of people who are who are basically kind of in, instinctively or explicitly marxist materialist socialist and anti-authoritarians 
reading Freud and thinking, oh, this is amazing. This stuff's amazing. Like we've got to, we've got to be able to do something with this as part of our radical political project, but never knowing exactly what that thing would be. Like given that Freud himself was always skeptical that there was any political utility to his observations. And in my controversial opinion, had become skeptical that there was even any clinical application of his observations by the end of his life. I mean, the interpretation of dreams basically is this big book. It is an incredibly fascinating book. And it's basically makes the argument that that you can interpret dreams in order to learn something about what is going on in a human in the dreamer's unconscious that you can sort of render the unconscious conscious through the interpretation of dreams um i don't want to spend ages on it just to say that isn't is the sort of thing people who don't know anything about psychoanalysis think dream interpretation is where it's like every time you dream of a bridge it means you're going through some transition or something like that's not freud's analytical method in fact his analytical method is very focused on the idea that everything going on in the conscious and unconscious is about language so if you dream of a bridge you might be it's probably because you're thinking of your friend midge because it rhymes with bridge i mean that would be an example that's not a joke. I mean, that is the sort of way it works. And then, of course, the, the, in fact, the, the interpretation of dreams goes through several editions as Freud's own theories change and develop. And like, at one, at, when he first publishes the first edition, basically the idea is the psychoanalyst he writes down the patient's uh, account of a dream. And they basically, they do, they go at it like it's a sort of cryptic crossword and they figure out, you know, what's actually going on in their unconscious. The more Freud develops, like the more he, you know, the the more it becomes the idea that, well, actually, every dream is the expression of a repressed wish, a desire. But then all of those desires actually relate to things from childhood. And in, in fact, it's all some expression of the basic trauma of becoming human and actually doesn't it, do, do all dreams just mean the same thing at the end of the day and, and in that case why did we start bothering in the first place um and you know the the kind of layers of footnotes and in in the different editions of the interpretation of dreams are quite sort of um notorious i mean what you sort of end up in a place where yes you in theory you probably could figure out something going on in your unconscious by by reading a dream but the various factors that all shape a dream are in fact so complex the kind of psychosocial factors and the different layers of your own experience are so complex that it's probably actually impossible to do that <laughs> so apart from um in any kind of reliable ways well no i don't, I don't know if that's sort of fatal to the surrealist project though because one of the, one of the things to go on and think about is like which i think you probably were going to do and i interrupted you is to think about well what's the what's the what separates the surrealist from like freudian psychoanalysis and like i think in the surrealist manifesto breton says that like you know they he wants access to the like unconscious or to, to, to dreamlike existence and the unconscious in order to bring it under sort of like a, a rational analysis but i'm not actually sure that's what they actually want on to do you know i they seem to be like a lot of the practices that we might talk about a bit later were not necessarily to get something from the from the unconscious access via dreams or whatever or by other techniques and then basically analyze them in terms of the rational world but like to keep those to lay them over each other or something like that do you know what i mean at this point i think it's just useful because we've only mentioned i think the surrealist manifesto as like a written work. I just wanted to say in this period from the 1920s to about the 1950s and 60s, there are, there's a lot of like literary production, both in terms of yes. poetry, like novels, etc. Like 
around this issue of like dreams and eroticism or dreamlike quality and trying to explore the subconscious. And and quite a lot of it is not, you know, is co- coming from women and majority world. So for example, there's Joyce Mansour, who's an uh, Egyptian French poet, and she wrote a lot of stuff around this kind of dream, trying to explore dreams. Like there's Dorothy Tanning. I think she might have been a little bit later with her surrealist novel, Chasm. And there's like pointing to the point, which I think we're going to come to later on like Afro-surrealism, there's an artist called Aina Onabulu, who is actually a Nigerian involved in the Paris Surrealist group, who was like incorporating African folklore into like writing and art around that time. So there was a lot of like both cross-cultural and like it was a kind of global movement. And there were like a lot of women's stuff that was written as well. But the Surrealist Manifesto team seems to be like way above in terms of people's understanding um, of what Surrealism is or knowledge base, basically. But there was a lot other, of other stuff that was written. You're right. And I mean, Breton's actual like job wasn't manifesto writer. His job description was poet and novelist. Um, and Breton and the people closest to him, they would do this kind of, you know, basically you would try and write poetry that was just completely stream of consciousness. That just was like a, a psychoanalytic word association game. You would just write down words. And it was like the opposite of the incredibly carefully crafted writing of the like the previous generation of naturalist and realist writers so. so that's interesting in terms of craft because then my question would be you know as 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 a copywriter myself i'd be thinking well is it that they're anti-edit because almost everything in the first draft is a bit random so i'd be wondering like whether they whether not editing that stream of consciousness and making it you know more palatable for the reader or more better constructed was was a kind of part of their craft or anti-craft my understanding is the hardcore surrealists like breton and people close to him were sort of anti-editing they were after they were after a practice which was almost and which they themselves saw pure yeah it was pure Did they use the term purity maybe i'm not sure but they definitely were very into spontaneity and they were very self-consciously interested in things like occult practice and esoteric practice. And it is about some way, somehow directly accessing the unconscious and giving voice to it in the world in a way which is in some sense powerful. And that is, I'd say there's a really, in, there's a family resemblance between that and just like James Joyce, like doing a perfect rendition of a character's internal monologue, in, including all the random stuff that pops up into their heads. But it's only a family resemblance because Joyce edits and edits and edits and edits and edits. And that's probably why he writes like the greatest novel in the English language and like and Breton didn't really, you know, Breton had a couple of novels that people thought that are quite good. But, um, but I mean, you know, he's not, I mean, his novels, I think were not like Najar, I don't think was, was written in any, in any kind of as Najar rather, I don't think it was written in, in a sort of spontaneous style. And then there's a whole question then as well, is what you're doing if you are a surrealist artist are you like engaged in some sort of almost ritualistic practice to release the energies of the unconscious or are you rather trying to create like dreamlike images and and uh, texts which you might do through a very very conscious process well that's that's a really interesting question because i when i when i talk about like the craft of writing and creative writing and how i write my novel how i've written my novel i tend to explain it in the sense that creativity is something that all human beings have and it comes from the inside out and 
art is the imposition of structure on that creativity. Very surrealist, uh, very surrealist principles, I think. Are they? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Well, it depends which surrealist, doesn't it? Well, yeah, yeah. But like, I think we should get a little bit more specific about that because what we've been talking about is automatic writing and and they also practice this automatic drawing. André Masson is the person who invents automatic drawing, which is a sort of similar thing. And it's almost like a meditative practice where they're trying to, you're trying to bypass your conscious mind, basically trying to empty your mind up and then just follow the words. Do you know what I mean? Create the first sort of phrase and then follow another uh, the next sort of phrase um, out, out of nowhere. So it's almost like meditative. That's morning pages. I mean, that's what people can, in a contemporary sense would call morning pages, which is you sit down and write three pages, ideally freehand in the morning of whatever fucking shit's in your head. And that helps you get on with your day. And what I was trying to get at with my point about imposing structure is then what happens after that is that just the exercise which i think is what jeremy was getting at like is this just an exercise for the sake of it as part of a practice as part of the movement as part of going back to the questions how we want to live our lives or is the when we see it you know like a century later or we're we're looking at this stuff has has kind of an edit or like an artistic form been imposed upon that? Like, is it about the end point or is it about the process? Because I think that's interesting in trying to understand like what they were trying to get at as a movement. Yeah, that's an interesting question, actually, whether it's the end end product or the process. Well, I think it just varied. As my understanding is, there was a relatively small group of the people we're talking about who were actually around like the, the situation in magazines and around Breton, who for me, it was really more about the process. But then there was a much wider generation of, of writers and visual artists who were really interested in in a more conventional idea of art as craft, but they were interested in exploring the kind of blurry boundary between the conscious and the unconscious, the dreaming world and the waking world. But but they would have been doing it in a way which would be much more conventionally artistic. I mean, one other way to get into that is is to talk about surrealist games. So this is one of the other practices that the surrealists undertake. The most famous game is uh, the writing game Exquisite Corpse, which um, which is where you know it's a collective game where somebody writes the, perhaps the first word or phrase, and then they fold the paper over, and somebody else writes the next phrase, etc. And then you create a, a, some poetry that way. And of course, there's drawing versions of that that we used to do when I was a kid. Where I used to do the... lots of that. Yeah. I still do that. We, I still, I did that with the Anarchist Walking Group when we went away for uh, Christmas once or what. That's a, a, a follow-on from automatic writing. Is you're trying to do that process, but you're trying to do it yourself. Do you know, so you're not writing about what what what's been going on on your mind to this day. You're trying to access the level below that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I think there's several things to say about all that, isn't there? I mean, one is, like, on the one hand, you know, the, the products of that historical moment in surrealism that have, have seemed to have survived the best are these the very carefully crafted painted images produced by, by people like René Magritte. You know, René Magritte, famous for his paintings of, um, you know, guys in bowler hats raining from the sky or with apples in their faces or something. And... There's a whole interesting question as to just why are those images so arresting and compelling? Like, why are they so interesting? And then there's all that. And then there's also, there's a question as to whether 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 this kind of practice, whether it is actually accessing some truth of the unconscious, uh, whether it is doing something completely different, which is really about exposing the convention, socially conventional nature of meaning, which you don't really have to have a theory of the unconscious to talk about at all, you know. And, and also, like, what would it be doing if you did? Like, if, if suppose you were actually 
giving voice or visual representation to some profound truth of the unconscious will say what like what's that what's that in aid of um freud himself famously was very skeptical even though the surrealists really treated him as a sort of guru figure he famously says at one point well I can't remember the exact quote, but it's, he says, I, when I, whenever, when I, the surrealists are always talking about the unconscious, but whenever I look at their work, I only see the conscious. Like to him, it's all very contrived. It's like Magritte is not accessing the truth of dreams. He's thinking, yeah, suppose I put an apple for a bloke's head. That's some mad shit, isn't it? <laughs> you know, that's, which is not, which is a very conscious, deliberate thing to do. Which is therefore saying it's art right because that's the thing is that if it's imposing structure if you if you're consciously putting an apple there if you're doing it consciously then it's about the conscious so that would fall in line with like my the argument that i'm testing yeah that's true that that's true but i think also i think at the same time i think the surrealist and this is very striking in the first manifesto in in later manifestos and documents breton is obviously trying to get away from this but it's very striking that a lot of what he's saying just seems like it could have been said by William Blake. It could have been said by the, the early Romantics. It's about some notion that, in, that inspiration and imagination are just as important components of human experience and human culture uh, as rational thought. You know, in the same way, you know, William Blake is reacting against the previous generation of poets in particular who have explicitly come to the conclusion that there is nothing new to say. And that all you can do is write incredibly well-crafted verses saying exactly stuff people have said hundreds of times before anyway. Blake is like, no, like, you know, I, I don't believe in that. I want to imagine a completely different kind of world, a different cosmos. And he comes up with all this wild personal mythology. And, and um, I shouldn't go on about that too lot because we already decided preparing this show that we, 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 should, we need to do a whole show one day about like, the weird 19th century. But... But anyway, the point is, like, it's not that new. I mean, it's not really a new idea. I mean, it runs through a whole strand of 19th century radical art, in, including the symbolist and the decadence and the aesthetic. This idea that imagination and inspiration are, are crucial features of art. And there, I think there is, I think, it, I think with reference to what you're saying, actually, Nadia, I would say there is, there's a sort of dialect, you, crudely, you can say there's a sort of dialectic in theories of creative practice, which really going back to the early 18th century there's this dialectic between people saying it's all about the craft it's all about discipline it's all about the endless redraft and the perfect sentence and then people say no no it's not about that it's about it's about your dreams it's about the imagination it's about the completely new and unsayable feelings and it's and there is this there is this sort of diet you, you could say there's this dialectic this is back and forth with successive cohorts and generations stressing one side or the other of, of that dialectic, and from that point of view, surrealism is would actually just just be like the the latest or maybe the last, probably not even the last, like you know, part of that process at, at the time when it's happening. But there definitely there is this element, which again wouldn't have been alien to Blake actually, but. There is this element that there's this sort of implication that somehow by freeing the imagination, by releasing the imagination, you are somehow breaking free of the strictures of normative of bourgeois consciousness. That, that that is what you are trying to do. Of course, I mean, lots again, there's a there's a kind of blurriness between the surrealist proper idea that, well, yeah, by by exploring the world of dreams and releasing dreams into the waking world, you're breaking down bourgeois consciousness. 
And for example, Bertolt Brecht's idea that actually, look, if you want to break down bourgeois consciousness, what you have to do is something more directly related to what Duchamp is doing, actually. What you have to do is is just make the audience very, very aware of the extent to which theatre and literature and art is just a set of social conventions and any set of social conventions can be changed or be exposed for what it is. There's a kind of blurriness between all those different approaches i think one thing i was really struck by reading the manifesto again actually was that reading it now a lot of it is just about the value of imagination and it's against pure realism in art and i kept thinking reading actually if you were reading this somebody was writing this now you you, it, it looks as much as anything just like a defense of the fantastic just like a defense of you know, it, it reads like it reads like it, you could read it as a manifesto just for like science fiction and fantasy fiction as like legitimate forms of art, as well as anything that we would recognize as as surreal, because it's mostly just talking about it, the imagination and the imagination being something that shouldn't be constrained by a demand to precisely represent like everyday experience in a completely realistic way. Yeah, totally. But I think there's something that is really profound about bringing that imagination out into like physical objects and into visual yeah not just about the writing like in my continuation of comparing certain uh concepts that we talk about to <laughs> drugs i think last time i did festivals festivals were like psilocybin i think like surrealist production is a bit like mdma like this this conversation is I'm overwhelmed by a sense of both alertness and like calm well-being just by looking at some of this artistic production online. Like if you look at Merritt Oppenheim's 1936 Fur Breakfast, like the fact of having it's called Le Déjeuner en Fourrure. It's just it's all it is is a cup and saucer and a spoon like that's made of fur. <laughs> yeah. And it's so weird. It's so weird, but so simple that it just creates this sense of alertness in me. And that's the effect that I think this surrealist production has. So I think I think there's something there about like, you know, obviously the writings are important. There was a manifesto, there's all of this. There's like, you know, as to your point, Jeremy, you can say that you are something or you're doing something <laughs> that does not necessarily mean that you are. But at the end, at the end of the day, there's there's this production of like these products of these art and this you're know, these pieces, which is not just about I think the symbolism like Duchamp. Like I just think the reaction to the urinal that I have is mostly like that's hilarious and funny and a bit punk. Like that's how I feel about it. But when I see something like you know the furry teacup, like it's very Alice in Wonderland to me. Like it it makes me feel both excited and calm at the same time. Yeah, I mean, so that's one way we can... That is a great image, that, Daddy. I just Googled it, and it's very unsettling, isn't it? I find it really unsettling. For some so reason. unsettling, but um, I love that. Well, I love that cup. kind of... Yeah, yeah it's, like it is. It. it is unsettling. <laughs> is it? I like it. I want to stroke it, but it's unsettling. <laughs> And, I'm, I'm feeling that, about it however you two are telling me to feel about it. I, have to say. <laughs> I, when I looked at it as well. And when, Nadi, and when Nadi was talking about it, I thought, yeah, that's just that's really nice. And then Keir said it was unsettling. And I started, I started finding it unsettling. Whenever I think of surrealist sounds, I can't not think of King Crimson and uh, I think we should play a track from their 1969 debut album in the court of the Crimson 
king and I think we should play Moonchild, including the dream and the illusion. Call her Moonchild, dancing in the shallows of a river. Lonely Moonchild, dreaming in the shadows of a As we're talking about surrealism and Dada, we should definitely play something by the band Devo. And Devo are a band from Akron, Ohio. They were kind of received in the late 1970s as a post-punk band, but in fact, they were formed in 1973, which puts them before the, the year zero of 1976, the punk rock year zero. So they're sort of pre and post-punk, if you will. Devo stands for de-evolution. So it's a band sort of semi-serious theory that they revolve around that humanity has stopped evolving um, and has started to devolve. They sort of reflect that in their sort of music. It's probably like an art, experimental art, punk, jerky uh, uh, kind of music to start with. They sort of go into synth punk in the 1980s. Um, but it's also reflected in their their sort of their, their mannerisms and their sort of their show, I suppose, their shtick. They all used to wear matching jumpsuits on stage famously used to wear plant pots on their head uh, in that way they were reflecting that sort of surrealist sort of approach to 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 art i suppose and art and culture but it's their um, origin story which is really on the money for our topic today it's a story that's recounted in various places but one of the places it's recounted is simon reynolds book about post-punk rip it up and start again it contains experts excerpts from an interview with gerald v casale who, along with Mark Mothersbauer, the sort of cr creative core, the conceptual core of the band. So Cassale and Mothersbauer both studied at Kent State University. And in fact, they were among the anti-war students protesting at the university on the 4th of May 1970, which is a time and a date and a place of a very, very famous massacre. Um, what happens is there's a, there's a demonstration on the university. Uh, the National Guard come in. They open fire. Two, uh, four students are shot dead. Uh, one student is just coming out of a lecture theatre. Then the one even in the, in the on the protest gets shot dead. This comes after a massacre that happened at, I think it's Jackson University, like a black university. Uh, just a couple of weeks before, there's a massacre where where um, once again the National Guard just open fire and they open fire on a on a, on a student accommodation building. I think kill a load of students. Um, the Kent State massacre is a really very famous uh, massacre. And um, Casale and Mothersbound actually know two of the students who were shot dead, Alison Krauss and Jeffrey Miller. There's a very famous and harrowing picture of, of a female student stood over Alison Krauss's body screaming. Um, you could look that up if, that, if you so desire. And so that experience, that experience of having their friends shot dead, of being involved in this, in this horrific massacre, which they couldn't really understand, it, it affected Casale and Mothersbound as sort of like a turning point. Uh, they they sort of uh, at that point they thought well, well we're naive just protesting these things there when they can just shoot us dead it's like Cassell says it's like a crossroads after Kent State it seemed like you could either join a guerrilla group like the Weather Underground actually try assassinating some of these evil people the way they'd murdered anybody in the 60s who tried to make a difference or you could just make some kind of whacked out creative da da art response which is what Devo did 
we should play the song Jocko Homo from the album Question. Are we not men? Answer. We are Devo. That leads us into discussion of the marvelous, <laughs> because like, like one of the one of the ways in which people have talked about um, about surrealism is or surrealist practice is that like part of what you're trying to do is inculcate this a sort of openness to the marvelous, basically, which would be sort of a, an openness to, to finding something unsettling but yet enjoying it, that sort of thing, or like you know looking and enjoying the sort of contradictory elements of society or, or, or inexperienced. You know what I mean? And then from that, it's not just about enjoyment; it is you know it is about trying to use that to try to to, to better understand reality. Do you know what I mean? Finding these contradictory. Sorry, who's using the term marvellous? Because it feels like a bit of a pedestrian term in the way that it's used today. You mean to marvel at. I'm sorry to be picky about this, but who's who's using that term? It, it's a surrealist term. So it's in it's in like the the first surrealist manifesto by Preton, etc. It's basically the weird, perhaps, is another way to put it, right? It's like, you know, you want to, um, uh, it's a sort of like more positive way of putting uh, putting the phrase the weird, perhaps. But like, so one of the ways in which you can think about that is you're trying to inculcate like, an openness to that, a way in which you sort of recognize that. And by recognizing that, you just sort of recognize the boundaries, basically, of bourgeois reality or something like that. But I think, it, like one of the other ways in which we can get, got to get into that. In fact, one of the one of the ways we could do it is by by sort of saying that by the end of like later on, Andre Breton sort of says that this automatic writing, etc., is probably a failure. It's probably not. You're probably not able, basically, to get at the unconscious by doing this practice of automatic writing. And one of the reasons they sort of know that is because like some people are really much better at it than others. <laughs> like Aragon <laughs> yeah. is like he he's just got the craft. Like Louis Aragon. Uh, he's got the craft basically so his his sort of like the word the, the word smithery means that he just produces much better automatic writing than other people who have question that was the absinthe craze over by then because yes. that might tell you it was wasn't it so, okay so that's not influencing well, look, they're the, taking drugs and stuff I, I, this really i think this really is a not this really is a not taking a lot of drugs i think the the hashish and opium crazes of like the which had informed like symbolism and the decadence I, I think had all kind of ended i don't think they are doing a lot of the reason i mean i'm, all, I'm kind of interested in this because again the thing i was really struck by reading the first manifesto especially again just yesterday was this is this is a pre-psychedelic document this guy is talking about right, desperately yeah. trying to achieve a whole bunch of states of mind and consciousness and accesses that after the popularization of LSD in the 1950s, really, even before the, the kind of psychedelic culture boom of the 60s, you know, anyone interested in this stuff is just going to say, just, you know, just get, get yourself some mescaline or some LSD, mate. That's what, you know, that's what you're after. <laughs> and it is really interesting, I think. I think that is really interesting. So in and in a way, I think I might be wrong. I might be wrong about the uh, the drug habits, but it's but I think this generation are not doing a lot of drugs. Whereas William James, like in, of the previous generation, like the American philosopher William James, is 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 doing mes is doing mescaline. 
there is something, and, I, and it speaks to Freud's comment, there is something like, yeah, it is like a sort of straight edger, like Desperate really, who really wants to get out of his head. Like, would that, that's what they would produce. Like, it was sort that's of part, interesting. Wasn't it? Freud off his face and coat? Uh, not, not by the twenties. No, he, he wrote. Oh, Freud, right, okay. Freud did indeed long before the invention of psychoanalysis. He wrote a paper extolling the virtues of cocaine. He was one of the people who thought cocaine was a wonder drug. In the late nineteenth century, one day we'll do. We can do a whole. <laughs> we'll do a whole episode about cocaine one day. I've got. I've got a great deal to say about the the cultural disaster of a work drug, a drug which is invented to let people work a lot, like coming to be coded as like a leisure drug. Well, it um, just makes our, it just makes assholes into bigger assholes. Anyway, another subject. Another, another subject. subject. But yeah, so I sort so I do I sort of think it's not I sort of th- I sort of think they're not really. They're not doing that. They're not doing any sort of meditation. They don't really know about yoga even though people know about yoga in like New York in 19, 1905. But the, these are Parisians. These are uptight Parisians, notoriously, you know, Parisians are kind of worse than than any than any of the other kind of big metropolitan elites in the 20th century are kind of really knowing about anything that's happening outside Paris, like in other parts of the world. Great cafe culture. So yeah, I think I think there's some I, there's something about it not being a, a drug thing. I think it might well be true that, but like at the same time. Walter Benjamin was like he was writing about do, taking. He did it one hashish. time. He did it one time. He wasn't doing it regularly, and he did yeah, it. Man, uh, but he, that's it, like the the person who does it does one acid trip and goes on about it for fucking weeks. <laughs> Sorry, smoking one spliff is not the same. Do you know what I mean? He was like, eating a lot, eating a lot of that. His whole hashish eating shtick was. Well, this is the thing they were doing in the 1890s. Like, so uh, let's have a go at it. It's because he's reading Baudelaire and he's researching late 19th century Parisian culture. It's not, it was not because oh, it, interesting, it's yeah. not because it was a mm. thing that like his contemporaries were doing. I mean, what, what, I mean, that, that makes an even nicer story actually. Cause they, cause what I like about the surrealists is that they, they have got all of these practices and sort of like these, these, they, they're, they're trying to develop these techniques to, to, to access these. Well, either access these realms or to just get out of their heads in some sort of way in which, you know, because they're not getting out of their heads, perhaps. I, I really like the Serenus games because they're like collective practices, etc. Uh, and they've also got other techniques. So they sort of, well, in fact, in Dada, I think they develop sort of like the early cut-up techniques where they're making poetry by cutting up newspapers, shaking them in a bag and then drawing out phrases, etc., and aligning them. Uh, to make sort of random poetry it's like one of the things that one of the things they're really interested in is this idea of objective chance and introducing objective chance into um into art practice or the the poetry writing etc which is sort of interesting like that is so objective chance like people talk about it like hans arp is one of the people who 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 is trying to introduce objective chance into into art and they also like so they get into like doing rubbings of the floor etc and incorporating them into you know trying to get chance into into their practice as a way to to um attack the idea of individual genius do you know what i mean to try to get out of that idea that like and that's why i think that like is this an access to the unconscious or is this conscious is their craft is it about process is it about product is sort of that's part of what their motivation is is to sort of get away from this idea that there's individual genius of course if you if if it's chance is the thing that's creating this then you're sort of getting away from that of course you then you get into things about yeah but you're creating you're cu- curating the best 
of your chance uh, encounters, etc. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think I think probably the conventional reading of the Surrealists now, like from our vantage point today, would be that, well, they raise a whole load of questions about how you liberate artistic, creative, imaginative or imaginal practice from the strictures of bourgeois individualism, of liberal culture, of conservative hierarchy, etc. How you deal with the fact that we know that we have the un- unconscious experience is a huge part of human experience. How do we know that... Uh, social, that meaning is socially constructed, that the cultural conventions are just conventions and are changeable. Like, what do you do with all, you know all this stuff and what do you do with it? And to a large extent, the only tools they've got in order to try to address all those questions are a kind of half understood reading of Freud, a kind of very vague commitment to certain kinds of Marxism and a load of baggage from 19th century romanticism. That's kind of the only tools they've got available to them. And But they kick off, to some extent, a set of question a process of questioning which will just carry on to the present day in turn and that and that people will be trying to use all kinds of theoretical intellectual resources and, and practices and techniques and innovations to try to keep addressing and i think you can say the same thing for example in their attitude to gender so you read breton writing about you know woman the status of woman like for surrealism and on the one hand, it's like really cringe-inducing. It's this sort of, you know, woman is, I mean, it is a bit like, well, what? it is a bit like, just a bit like, oh, well, woman is the muse for the artist. It's even kind yeah, of... Yeah, there was a lot of that. There was a lot of that. It's even sort of evoking, you know, things like, you know, courtly love or something. But on the other hand, it's also quite clear that it's motivated by a strong intuition that patriarchy you know, the, the the dominance of women by men is, is one of the things you've got to try to break free from, and even though they don't know how to do it for the most part. But then presumably that's why, as you alluded to already, Nadia, like there was a lot of participation of women and women with quite self-consciously feminist agendas in, in the surrealist movement broadly conceived, wasn't there? So there's like several things going on. Like there's the muse artist problem. All of these stories of like famous surrealist artists or whatever who have had like women in the background doing social reproduction and caring, like surprise, surprise, like it's happened, you know, a million times. But also later in the surrealist movement, you then get a lot of kind of the female artists like focusing on androgyny and and the rejection of the concept of like the feminine art like quite deliberately as part of their practice as a way of kind of resolving that problematic of the muse it feels like would be how i how i would put it okay so i think it's worth mentioning a few like interesting artists and writers who are like female as part of or associated with with the surrealist movement in some way. So, you know, the famous one is Frida Kahlo. There's a debate about whether she would call herself that. Apparently, she said that she was not um, a surrealist. But there are others um, who were doing writing at the time, the famous one being Leonora Carrington, and the notable work is The Hearing Trumpet, which was actually published way later in 1974. There's Dorothea Tanning. There's Unica Zurna, I think. I think that's the right uh, pronunciation in terms of like stuff that's coming out of, as you were talking, like the automatic text and what that production is. Um, There's Joyce Mansour, as I noted, um, who is, I think, 
I think, I think French Egyptian, I think, and she's the one who had produced loads of different poems. And then there's like various different artists that I think people should check out. And my um, top three are Oppenheim, who I mentioned because of her amazing furry teacup, Louise Bourgeois, who is going to be difficult for people if you're an arachnophobe, because I'm not an arachnophobe, but she's got something really good going with like shivery tentacles and also like bulbous form. Um, and then the big one who, again, she might not consider herself a surrealist, surrealist but th this is jumping forward slightly to the 21st century here. But if you haven't seen Yayoi Kusama's work, who's a Japanese artist who's 94 years old and still alive today, it is mind-blowing and definitely surrealist in my books. So I wanted to mention just a few names so people could go ahead and have a look at some of the, the amazing art produced by some of the women. Great. We're going to have to get some images in our ACFM uh, newsletter yeah. this month. Yeah. And of right? course, a bit of uh, automatic writing by your hosts, of course. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> a good idea. <laughs> We Green should coffee. do that. Actually, it'd be funny. Um, on, on or off drugs? I'm not sure. <laughs> Mine will just be like lists of household objects. Um, we've mentioned uh, Lewis Carroll, Alice in Wonderland. We're going to talk about that in more detail when we do a show about the 19th century. But of course, Lewis Carroll and Alice in Wonderland and Alice Through the Looking Glass were key reference points for the surrealists. They continue to be. Uh, reference points for some of their successors. Gilles Deleuze basically does a whole book about Alice, uh, his book The Logic of Sense, and the classic piece of music inspired by Alice in Wonderland is obviously Jefferson Airplane's uh, sceptical psychedelic anthem White Rabbit, but I thought we would play a contemporary cover of that track. This is Prince Fatty with their 2020 dub version of White Rabbit. I really like that version of White Rabbit. I played it out a few times. And thanks very much to friend of the show and dubologist extraordinaire Alan Finlayson for putting me onto that track. Should we talk a little bit um, specifically about the critique of capitalism that existed within the surrealist movement? Yeah, I think I think it's an important it's important to do that because it is the bit that sort of gets cut out of that of surrealism as an aesthetic, basically. That, that they were uh, intimately linked to the revolutionary movements movements of their time. So Breton tries to join the French Communist Party in the in the early 20s, I presume. I can't quite remember. But basically, he they, they're sort of like saying, they're trying to reject him. <laughs> he gets so, thrown out. He gets expelled from the yeah, CP. Gets... I can't, I'm, well, I'm never, I've never been totally sure what, exactly what for, but some breach with orthodoxy. Yeah, well, I'm sure, yeah. There's a there's a debate when he's trying to join and like this sort of the person from the French Communist Party is sort of saying, look, you know, you need to write proletarian literature, and he's saying we can't, we can't, we've got, we've got, to, we're bourgeois, we've got to write our way out of or, or work our way out of bourgeois subjectivity, basically. 
it's sort of interesting because it's almost like we're going back to something we circled around a long uh, for a long time, and in fact, was in the first ever ACFM, I think, which is this distinction between a revolution in your head, I uh, having to like reconstruct uh, consciousness in some sort of way, recon like, like examine the sort of structures around around thinking etc and then like a, a revolution in the world much more material revolution you know this seizing of power and overthrowing uh, social relations and restructuring infrastructure and all those sorts of things and breton's argument was well that you can't separate them they're both the same thing basically and the cp's argument was well yeah but you're going to do this one you're going to do the the latter one first and then we'll deal about we'll deal with the other bit they all hold the whole problem of freedom we'll deal with that later yeah, well, the, well the, I mean, there had been a big fight within the communist movement over the course of the 20s, over the question of, well, what was communist art? What should it yeah. look like? And initially, you know, the, in the early 20s, at the time the Serenist Manifesto was first being written, in post-revolutionary Russia, in the Soviet Union, the idea is that revolutionary art will be avant-garde. It will be experimental, formally experimental and will aspire towards a sort of radical dem democratization of the ways in which art is made, but also radical experimentation with form. And it's entirely part of the Stalinist project in the 30s to, to shut that down and to replace any notion that revolutionary communism is associated with aesthetic avant-gardism, to replace that with the commitment to socialist realism. Uh, the idea that the only properly socialistic form of art is quite simplistic, is therefore easily comprehensible by the masses, and is and represents realistically represents the lives of workers either in their oppressed state in the capitalist world or in their heroic liberated state in the Soviet world. And that is the the fight. The fight is over. You know, which of those which of those things is properly socialistic, and and can they coexist with each other? And it was really, I mean, like no one is, I guess, you know, there, there are very few good defences of like socialist realism that ever get made, really. Like in, in at least the idea that socialist realism should have, was it was correct for that to be the exclusive form of aesthetic practice. But, you know, that, that those ideas carry on into the 50s and 60s. We talked about this a couple of times on the show before, but it's still animating the folk revival in the 50s, partly the, the idea that it's only really folk music with its melodic simplicity and its semantic clarity and its supposed organic relation to the lives and culture of the poor, which is properly communistic music, as opposed to like jazz, which is corrupted by the decadence of the urban capitalist metropole. So, yeah, it's, and so surrealism, and yeah, and, and Breton, I mean, that's one reason, I think one one reason Breton retains this heroic status within the history of kind of radical thought and art, actually, is because he, he does sort of take it on himself to become like the guy who is going to have the fight with the Communist Party leadership over this issue again and again. Uh, particularly in France, you know, and the French Communist Party was very big at the time, and it was an important part of the international communist movement and then in in the and then he teams up with trotsky and he and trotsky in in the 40s produce a a manifesto for artistic freedom like arguing explicitly against any form of repression or suppression or prescription of artistic practice uh, within socialist within or by socialist parties or socialist states. trotsky in exile in mexico at this point which is yeah. where where breton would have met uh, frida carlo etc and then and then eventually he becomes allied to the organized anarchist movement in in France like fairly 
predictably. But that does all tie into these issues around, you know, what what is the function of art? And it's, you know, the and, the, and again, I've mentioned Brecht already, and, you know, there are these two different ideas, really, of the function of art and the function of art for radical politics. Like, there's this idea on the one hand that the function of art is really just to represent the, the world realistically and truthfully, and the other being the idea that it is, the, the function of art is is to challenge the ways in which we perceive the world in such a way as to somehow raise consciousness and i think from i mean from a contemporary vantage point i mean one of the weirdest things about all those debates is the idea that you can't have both you know you can't i suppose that i mean in our because we like i mean even to this day you know i know people who like can't stand ken loach because he's a real he's basically a socialist realist aesthetically and they might like boots riley or they might like other kinds kinds of avant-garde cinema but they don't like ken Loach. yeah i think that's about people's like internal intellectual and emotional planes and in terms of the kind of art which they can engage with so i think the people who don't like ken loach like i get why they would not like ken loach you know what i mean like i like ken loach but it doesn't it doesn't make me feel that the potential, like it doesn't, it's not expansive. If anything, it's just depressing because <laughs> it makes me see certain realities of the world. And I don't, I think there's something there about what you were saying, Jeremy, in terms of like, the pro- there's a problem with saying, well, the point of art is is representing the world as it is, because as it is is subjective, which is the whole point of what I think this, the the surrealists are trying to get at. It because then you have to go one question before and go, well, what is real anyway? And like kind of what is the truth? That doesn't mean that we can't agree that something like Ken Loach is kind of like quite a um like aesthetically quite crude but in a way uh, cycling forward to the 21st century i would say that that is could be quite revolutionary as well because that is being masked by a lot of kind of layers of you know the plastic that neoliberalism and um capitalist rea- realism kind of try to try to buoy everything with like my favorite sort of surrealist influence art is probably from like People like John Hartfield and then George Gross, etc. People who were around that Berlin Dada moment earlier on, and then in the late twenties and into the thirties, they're doing uh, that. They're 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 producing political propaganda posters with the influence of of that that sort of Dadaist surrealist sort of aesthetic, but like basically much more towards the sort of realist side, if you know what I mean, basically. That I think there's this tension that goes that goes through and is in different places at different times. Do you know what I mean? I mean, the other thing to say is that, like, when we're talking about like the explosion of uh, of artistic, well, and architectural practice and inventiveness in in post revolutionary Russia, you know, it is avant garde, but it's avant garde as in we're inventing these things, but we're going to take them to the people, and like these are going to be the new the new reality. Do you know what I mean? We're going to take it on a train, get all of these artists on a train, and go around the country, sort of thing, rather than just. So it, it is a breakup of like the sort of bourgeois art institutions and, and like the reorientation of that sort of practice into a completely different world and a different with a different aim. Do you know what I mean? One thing that I'm trying to get my head around as we're saying all of this, I'm trying basically to imagine like what were these people doing? Like, were they just sitting around? Was it like the existentialists or whatever? Like, it's a small group of people who are actually sitting around, you know, having conversations with each other. Like, or is there, when they call it a movement, I'm just trying to get my understand, like, is it a growing movement? Are there people who are being recruited into this, like, organically or like, 
you know, quite deliberatively? Like, where is the movement piece in this? I think there's, yeah, it's a really good question. I think there's a, two, a, a pretty simple answer. It's, it's magazines and exhibitions. Yeah. That's basically yeah. it. That's yeah. the price. Which basically shows you haven't broken with the art world, have you, basically? <laughs> no, but, well, yeah, but it's also, and it, but it does recruit people. To answer the yeah, question, yeah. it does spread out. And, like, by... You know, by the forties, there's quite a, there's a strong sense of, of there being a sort of international. I mean, they talk about the surrealist international. They they see it as a kind of international movement, and you know, there are groups of self conscious, active surrealists, obviously in places like New York, but also in London. Like in the fifties, there's a fairly active little group of people who consider themselves consider themselves surrealists and in france it continues to be a really important element of that radical culture into the 60s and it feeds into situationism so i think they do recruit people but of course the other thing that happens is that all of these aesthetic techniques the aim of which is to to kind of you know, is to decommodify, is to is to break through the kind of, you know, the fetishization of the art object. It's to break through um, uh, our ordinary perceptions of reality. It's also to break with bourgeois morality by, you know, one of the things that characterizes surrealism is they'll, you know, you will see breasts and and things like this in in artwork in a way that you might not have done very much previously. And well, there's been so many breasts over history. <laughs> history is all breasts in art. It's a, it's a different portrayal of body, I think. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's a different it is. I mean they're and they're made, you know, they're sort of you know, they're made they look I don't know how to explain the difference with the way they look but but i mean you're right obviously female nude had been central theme all through artistic history but all of these techniques like by the 50s are getting taken up for example in in advertising agencies you know by the night already by the 50s they've stopped being shocking they've stopped being things that anybody thinks is really going to um is really going to you know, radically shake the foundation of somebody's consciousness, and they become just ways of getting attention. They, you know, they they come to be used in adverts. You know, surrealist technique gets taken up in in just sort of conventional cartoon animation, for example, and the sort of absurdism you know, comes to inform various aspects of relatively mainstream culture, and that, of course, that that's the thing that provokes. A lot of the the situationist project of trying to figure out like what it would mean if it would mean anything to have an artistic practice that can't be recaptured oh, well, by the capitalist yeah. machine. But does it stop being shocking or disturbing or uh, attention seeking? That kind of production, like surely that's the reason why it's co opted by profit making, you know, commodity advertising. Is because actually it didn't it it doesn't stop attracting attention because it's by default like that is part of what surrealist art does and it would still attract attention today. Okay, it might become mainstream, but it's not the same as you know if you put if you put somebody in front of a I don't know like a landscape drawing or or painting. I mean, I'm trying to think with climate change, maybe it would be provocative, but I'm just trying to think around like that that specific problem of like surely it's co opted because it's provocative. 
Yeah, I think. Yeah, I, I guess that's true. Yeah, I guess that's a good point. But but it also it pro- it's also like shock delinked from any sort of political project is sort of like something you'd associate with the young British artists etc in nineteen nineties mm, and mm, something yeah but it's also it like gets picked up in advertising in the fifties sixties and seventies etc because it sort of works it's effective it makes us you know like when we just looked at the um, furry tea- teacup that <laughs> affects you you know what I mean because the surrealists were onto something do you know what I mean I think you know that. That the, the the problem which Jem then points to is you know well what 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 is left of the of the sort of revolutionary surrealist project um, when the aesthetic has been emptied out the aesthetic from the like the nineteen twenties and thirties etc has been emptied out of meaning basically and incorporated into advertising and and just into general life do you know what I mean what do you what do you do then I think it's sort of interesting actually that like because there's still a surrealist movement now. Basically, there's a surrealist group in surrealist group in Leeds who do a, a nice little magazine called Phosphor. They've just got a new um, issue out, and their main practice is that they play they play games. You know, they do these surrealist games, etc. And the, what's most important to them is the is the, the, is not to produce works of art. A lot of the, I've just said they produce a magazine, um, but uh, you know, the, it's that that collective exploring of. The unconscious, but also like the, the the sort of like the conditioning of our conscious and unconscious mind by by uh, structures of power and capitalism, etc. So it's it's away from that production of like of visual art and into that sort of collective, creative, basically consciousness raising practice, if you want to put it that way. I think I just like to problematize this idea that things can be empty. I mean, this is a big philosophical question, but that like a piece of art or a magazine or whatever can be <clears throat> has been or can be emptied of meaning as if if by somebody coming across it like the meaning is necessarily attached to it what you get is a reaction not necessarily meaning so just because like i don't need to know like have knowing all of the background of a movement and what their intention is like doesn't help me or hinder me when i come across this thing as as the kind of as the person who is interacting with this piece or whatever. Now, sure, there might be like progressive ideals behind it, or there might be you know profit making, um, advertising ideals behind it. Sure, it might be trying to get me to to might be associated with a certain product or whatever. But it doesn't mean that the aesthetic doesn't have an effect. No, you're right, anymore. actually. Like if, because if basically the furry we just, teacup exactly if the furry exactly. teacup was bit, you know, the furry teacup is gonna forever make like I know give a certain reaction. Like I just want to touch it and sleep inside it and it's also making me feel a bit sick, which I'm enjoying. <laughs> but but regardless of whether that is on an ad for selling, you know, oil or cars or whatever, it's going to grab my attention. Was my point. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah, we did ex- we did demonstrate that it still has an effect, can it? The, these images can still have an effect. We can't talk about surrealism and, and, and Dadaism without mentioning Cabaret Voltaire, the band from Sheffield, from the, formed in the early 1970s, formed in 1973, and named after, of course, Cabaret Voltaire. The, the series of performances in Zurich in Switzerland during the First World War. Richard Kirk is the only is the only member I can I can remember the name of, and they 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 formed very much in that sort of experimental art music sort of sphere. Initially, they created 
tape loops and cataps and sort of form part of like industrial music, you know, the, the proto-industrial sort of sound. Later on, they became a little bit dancier, actually. And some of their later tracks, there's tracks in the 80s, are a little bit more like early electro, etc. But what we should play is Nag Nag Nag, which is the quintessential Cabri Voltaire song from 1978. Nag 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 So in the second half of the 20th century, I mean, arguably the big thing that happens to organised surrealism is that it, a lot of it goes into the so-called Situationist International, which is something we're going to talk about in a whole other episode one day. But there are lots of interesting little localised developments in different parts of the world, active surrealist groups. I think Keir's already mentioned there's, an active, there's still an active surrealist group in Leeds today publishing their magazine, Phosphor. But there's also... From cities to Chicago to Berlin, there are active surrealist groups. And Kia, you wanted to mention a group active in Poland in the 80s, didn't you? So in the 1980s, there was this surrealist protest group, probably put it that way, called the Orange Alternative, who who did things such as like they, they organized hap- surrealist happenings uh, in the major cities in Poland. They did surrealist graffiti, etc. But they also did that classic surrealist uh, technique of uh, writing a manifesto. I think it was called, it was called something like this, the Surrealist Socialist Manifesto, the Socialist Surrealist Manifesto. Uh, but what they were actually getting at was that disjuncture between, the, you know, the gap between the official narrative, which is being produced by the by the the, the regime and that people's lived experience. So towards the the latter end of the of the you know actually existing socialist countries, that gap became quite large. Um, and so it was that, that that idea that what they're trying to do is to is to manifest that gap, basically, the the surreal the surreal nature of living in two realities at once. Also, contemporaries of, of with them would have been the the Czech surrealist filmmaker Jan Schwankmeyer, who is arguably one of the most influential animators of the period of the eighties and the first half of the nineties, and his films uh, Alice. His Alice in Wonderland film, which was really one of my favourite films when I, when I was a teenager, it was really had a big effect on me. And uh, and his his film Faust as well in the nineties, his film of Faust, they're really they're considered absolute classics, like the the absolute classics of stop motion animation, where you use stop motion techniques to create the illusion of of uh, if just everyday objects kind of moving around. Um, Almost in this with this almost kind of inter, inset like movements, and Schwankmeyer, on a technical level, like he's regarded as one of the great animators of cinema history. But it's really interesting that, like, when he was working in uh, in Czechoslovakia in the eighties and even working in the nineties, he would he would always say that he regarded himself as a surrealist. That that, that was his aesthetic and political and philosophical point of allegiance. And in fact, there is still a, a an active surrealist group in Prague and movement in the wider Czech Republic. 
So there's some, um, just a couple of 21st century artists uh, and developments that I think I should mention because they might be interesting for our listeners to go and check out. So Reddy talked about Yayoi Kusama, the contemporary Japanese artist. She's incredible. Go check her out. Whether or not you think she's a surrealist, I think it's uh, surreally provocative. Um, and then I really recommend Julie Curtis, especially her work, uh, Appetizer. She's a contemporary of mine, and she fits into the realm of what's called the beautiful grotesque. I won't tell you exactly what that art piece is, but if you like the uh, Oppenheim's furry teacup, you might enjoy that one. Um, and also noted is a whole expansion into a space of AI and surrealism. Uh, there's a group called the Exquisite Workers, fantastic name. I don't know much about them, but there was also, they led a big exhibition in New York this year on AI and surrealism. So check them out as well. So maybe let's come back to where we started almost this whole show, talking about contemporary Afro-surrealism. Keir, you're a big fan of uh, that show Atlanta, which I'm embarrassed to say, despite my friend <gasps> Tim Buse, like having repeatedly told me to watch it. I haven't had time to watch it because I basically do not have time to watch non-kid-friendly TV. It is very kid friendly. <laughs> <laughs> it depends depends on where the where your kids are at. Yeah, so I I watched a couple of episodes at Atlanta this week, uh, and they did remind me of just how how great they are. Basically, I also watched Boot Riley's recent TV series I'm a Virgo, and in fact, he was Boots Riley who uh, also made the the Afro surrealist film uh, Sorry to Bother You, which we've mentioned several times already on this show. Um. You know, he did an interview actually last week in which he sort of, he says, um, you know, he deliberately he deliberately wants to go towards the absurd, basically, to sort of expose the contradictions. And I'm a Virgo is really interesting because it, it, it contains this sort of animated sort of like speech about um basically about basic Marxist uh, Marxist theories of capital accumulation. But it doesn't come across as didactic at all because it's integrated into this surreal sort of superpower that one of the character has characters has. Um, and so there is this there's been this 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 wave of 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 Afro surreal culture, particularly in the US, post Black Lives Matter movement basically. Probably a really great example and a, and a fairly isolated historically example of Afro-surrealist aesthetic is the work of Prince Paul in the first half of the 90s. Prince Paul is really one of these sort of unsung heroes of hip-hop at that time. It is Prince Paul's production and his mastery of dense sample collage technique, which really made De La Soul's first album into the classic it was. I think you know, the production is much more important than the rapping, I think. And uh, I think his first, uh, maybe his only, I'm not sure actually, solo album was this 1996 album, which is a sort of a deliberately absurdist, you know, comedy concept album called Psychoanalysis. What is it? Uh, really trying to explore in some ways the the absurd nature of the unconscious. So we could hear maybe something from the opening track of Prince Paul's Psychoanalysis. What is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I was. I listened to the to the. To... Three feet high, uh, three feet, uh, 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 you know, daylight album. I do, I do music. 
and I kind of do that 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 out type stuff, kind of like Ayla do, and and I like Prince Paul stuff, and I, I know that you know him, yeah, yeah. so you can just hook me up, so I can meet him, and uh, you know, be like an apprentice of Prince Paul. And he said, yeah, man, sure. So, because he said I, I was kind of a happening guy. It's interesting to talk about that Afro-surrealism because we can link that back to an earlier period. In fact, right back to the 30s, right, where where the Surrealist movement and André Breton, they are very closely concerned with colonial subjectivities and anti-colonial struggles. And they have contacts with people such as Emile Césaire, who is a poet from, from Martinique, so basically Francophile, Frank, French-speaking sort of colonies. Uh, Leopold Senghor, who's a surrealist poet and, in fact, the first president of an independent Senegal, who together established a negritude movement. And so negritude, in some ways, it's like negritude is to try to throw off the the, the story of Africa and African subjectivity. It was sort of created by colonialism, I think. Well, it's positive blackness, isn't yeah. it? It's basically, it's trying yeah. to. It also has this anti-essentialist kind of, you know, actively hybridizing um, dimension to it, right from the beginning. This idea of negritude, but partly because they're very interested in ideas like the Creole and the Creolization. So, so it's this. It's you know, it's really close to the. It's it's the Frank it's the Francophone world's like equivalent of of the politics and aesthetics of the Harlem Renaissance, which might be more familiar to English speaking people. This it's very radical kind of black politics, but it's also very self consciously anti essentialist and anti nationalist in a certain way from right from the beginnings. So it's really really interesting. Yeah, so it's a Francophone world, so they're trying to think through this dual subjectivity that they have, which is like you know this. Um, you know they're going back to Paris and meeting Breton etc um, and they've got this sort of like European sort of subjectivity to one degree and they have this African subjectivity and so and I think that's probably important uh, important as it as it goes through into you know later examples of Afro-surrealism you could almost sort of link it to W.E. Du Bois's W.E.B. Du Bois's um, concept of double consciousness that that thing yeah, of like yeah, you yeah, have yeah, to look sure. through you're looking through the oppressor's eyes, you know, and it doesn't add up. You know, it, it, it's a sort of, you know, the this construction of race and it, it, this category is being placed on you uh, and the reflections you get back from other people, they don't, just doesn't doesn't align with the way your own experiences, do you know what I mean? So you have this paradoxical subjectivity, which I think is what's Afro-surrealism, the surreal bit of Afro-surrealism, you know, this, this way that you're, you have to exist in these two different realities. One reality is this reality imposed on you, but which you sort of know isn't real, but which everybody be- acts as though it is real. Like that's just the basic the category of race, if you want to put it that way. And it has these like really concrete determinants of your life, and yet you know it's not real. So living in that double world. So like that, the question would be like: there's this history, but why is Afro surrealism emerged now at this point point in history? For me, Afro your Afro surrealism or the turn to surrealism, it has to be seen as a deliberate rejection of certain kinds of realism as as the way to express contemporary black social and political experience. And I think that's largely to do with the seeming exhaustion of the of realist modes, partly because of the co-optation of a rhetoric of realism by very mainstream and, and very reactionary forms of hip-hop. You know, it's a story I've told before, I think, on the show, and it's always worth mentioning that Mark Fisher, he he got the idea for this phrase, capitalist realism, after reading an article by Simon Reynolds, which was 
about gangster rap in the 90s and it was rejecting the argument made by supposedly leftist defenders of gangster rap the argument being that well although these guys seem to be celebrating a sort of hyper neoliberal masculinist uh, culture and aesthetics you know an, an ethic of you know individualism macho competition they're depicting the social reality of uh, black life and Simon's response was well, yeah but it, it's presenting that reality in such a way that it presents it as completely unchangeable and and, and which is all exactly what capitalists want you to think about it people it absolutely serves the interest of the political right for black people themselves to believe that the only way a, a young black man can survive or, or prosper in America is as this sort of caricatured hypercapitalist, the gangster. And I don't remember if Simon even used the phrase capitalist realism in the article. I think Mark just read it and said, yeah, that's, that's capital. It, it's realism, but it's capitalist realism. And the point being there that will historically, you know, black American music had had a very strong utopian element to it going all the way back to uh, gospel and before, really, in order to partly not just talk about the lived reality of black experience in America, but to gesture towards the possibility of a life in a world beyond that current condition. And I think that is, and that I think is really necessary. And I think it's therefore, it's not surprising in a way that two things have happened, really, in terms of black american culture in cinema literature music over the past few years there's been this turning in some quarters to a fairly explicit surrealism and there's also been this the, the massive expansion of interest in afrofuturism which is you know still always it's always really sort of surprising to me because I, I was doing lectures about afrofuturism from like the from the mid 90s and for years and years it was this very obscure term that a handful of critics used and then it became really popular but afrofuturism and afro surrealism are both about imagining a world different from the one we're in now rather than just saying this is the world how it is this is the only way that it can ever be but I think it's not that the latter, I think, isn't important. And we've we've raised this issue on this show, in this conversation, a few times. And I think, for me, I think the 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 conclusion to the question about you know whether do you, whether you want radical art or radical cultural practice to be realist or surrealist beyond the real or of the real to be utopian or to be simply representative is that is that you need both. You know, you need we need Ken Loach and Spike Lee to tell us about how bad things are. You know, we need what Gramsci calls the pessimism of the intellect. I mean, Gramsci was actually uh, citing Roman Roland. And, but we also need, you know, what Roland and then Gramsci calls the, the optimism of the will. And it's the surreal is partly about the expression of that optimism of the will, that the idea that things can be changed, things can be different, things can be changeable. And I think we can't do without both of the aspects of those different ways of perceiving the world. And I think these, I think you know, surrealism obviously still has an important role to play in helping us to imagine the world differently. Which is why, dear listener, at the ACFM Festival, we're going to play a double bill of <laughs> Ken Loach, The Wind That Shakes the Barley, and followed by Boots Riley, Sorry to Bother You. In fact, no, let's let's replace that. We're going to show the visuals of The Wind That Shakes the Barley with the soundtrack <laughs> of, oh of Sorry to Bother You. <laughs> this is Ashley. 